Our Father in heaven, we are so very blessed to live in the United States of America. When we consider the founding of this country and enshrined in its principles is that of religious freedom. And here we gather freely to worship you. And Father, we thank you for everything that America means to us. At the same time, we're burdened by what we see. By divisions, whether they be political or racial, or how we think. By poverty, by all sorts of issues. But Father, we know that this nation, that you are present with us as you are present in us. And we ask that you would move in us, that in our own way, in our own corner of this nation, we would make a difference. So God, we pray as we open your word today and we take up the topic of caring for others that we would see how we might apply that every day in our lives, whether it's at home, at work, at church, or out in the streets, wherever we are. We ask your blessing on us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. If you haven't opened your Bibles already, please join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6, 1 Timothy chapter 5, will be our key text today, caring for others. I think it was probably about 11 years ago now, I was in the same position as senior pastor of this church, had the same office and all that stuff. I was just 11 years younger. And it was a Friday, my day off, and I had come into the office for something, and I was wearing some flip-flops, shorts, a t-shirt, and a ball cap. And I came into the office that Friday, and I was in my office, and when you sit at my desk, you can look out, I've got a pair of windows, and I saw a car come up that I immediately recognized as Mark Elliott's car, our director of missions. He drove at that time a uh, Buick LeSabre or something like that, you know. And out of that car steps Mark Elliott, but also four men that just looked like pastors. And they looked like pastors from the South. They had the polyester pants, the dress shoes on, and the Oxford cloth button-down shirts with their shirt open because, you know, it wasn't Sunday, so they didn't have to have it buttoned and have a tie and a jacket. This was their casual pastor look. So I said to Mary Duncan, who was our office manager at the time, sitting at her desk, and she can also know to arrive this afternoon. She says, "Um, two things, Pastor Aaron. No, we weren't expecting Mark Elliott. And two, how did you know they're a bunch of pastors? I said, Mary, when they walk in, you'll know they're a bunch of pastors. I mean, they had the pastor hairdos too, you know, kind of like perfect and... So Pastor Larry Brandt was in his office, the first one you come to when you walk in our office suite, and then Pastor Bill Mize, who was like 72 at the time, right? Our part-time associate pastor was in his office, the second office you come in, in our office suite, and then I'm in my office in the back, and we're all doing our studying thing or whatever we're doing, and Mary's there, and 
So Mark Elliott and these four pastors we don't know walk in, and we begin shaking hands and greeting one another. Mark Elliott says to me, hey, these guys are from Arkansas. I was going, aha, Uh, I've got that southern pastor uniform on. And we'd like to talk to them about, you know, what's going on here in Lincoln and how they can help partner with us in planting churches. And do you have time, maybe? And, you know, I know you like ice cream, Brother Aaron. Can we entice you to go out to ice cream with us? I said, I can always eat ice cream. Where are we going? So since there were four pastors plus Mark Elliott and his Buick LeSabre, one of the pastors says to me, hey, can I ride to ice cream with you? Um, that way we won't be so crowded, and besides, I can get to know you a little better, Brother Aaron. I said, sure enough, you can. So we're walking to my car, and this pastor-looking pastor says to me, so tell me the name of your pastor there. I said, my associate pastor? He says, well, yeah, the one that looked like he was 40 or 50. I said, Pastor Larry, he's our full-time associate pastor for worship and discipleship. She said, so tell me the name of your pastor The older one, I said, you mean Bill Mize, my part-time associate pastor for evangelism? He says, well, who are you? (laughs) I said, well, I'm the senior pastor. He says, well, I was wondering how you had the bigger office. (laughs) I didn't look like a senior pastor that day. I'm wearing flip-flops and shorts, a t-shirt, and a ball cap. And obviously, those senior pastors had a picture of what a senior pastor should look like. He should be older than me and dressed like them, right? That is not me. This is about as fancy as I get these days, unless it's Lord's Supper or funeral or a special occasion. But we all do that, don't we? We have our idea of how somebody should look or how something should go. It's natural. It's normal. It's based on our experience. And when we look at our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see some ideas that are related to that in principles. Because in specific, what Paul is writing to Timothy about today is that how he and leaders in the church should care for members of the church. But in general, what we can learn is how we as believers in Jesus can care for anybody anywhere in the world, not just in the church. And if you look at the outline of this text, you see in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 and 2 are really about how Timothy should relate to people of different ages. Timothy was a young man. He was a young pastor. Most of the people in his church would be older than him. How should he relate to them? We see that in verse 1 and verse 2. In verses 3 through 8, you see Paul giving instruction on how Timothy should relate to widows in the church. One commentator actually called them genuine widows. We'll define that in a few moments as we get there. And then verses 9 through 16, Paul's given specific instruction to Timothy about how to relate to younger widows in the church. Well, again, we'll explain the difference between these two different types of widows and why there would be different instructions for them. But I want you to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, if you're able to stand And let's read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll begin our exposition. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. 
Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for the pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people instruction too, too, that, uh, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up her children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Verse 11, as to young, for, for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away and followed Satan. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. May God add to the reading of his word. You may be seated. We want to talk this morning about five different commands to follow in this scripture. And then we've got principles in general, and then we've got some questions to observe as well. But the first command here is that Paul is telling Timothy, and God is telling us by inspiration of his scripture, that we should treat others with respect. Treat others with respect. Paul's giving a specific instruction to Timothy, his son in the ministry, but it's general and it's woven throughout this passage that we should treat others with respect. In addition to caring for and providing for the needs of others, we should be gracious, kind, and respectful in the manner we do that. Notice what he said there. He said, don't rebuke an older man harshly. In other words, Timothy, you're the pastor. If you need to rebuke an older man, yes, you can do it, but do it with respect. He said, exhort him if he's your, as if he's your father. And then it says, treat younger men as brothers. Now, we know some brotherly relationships sometimes are at odds. Matter of fact, the Bible says a brother is born for adversity. But what he's referring to here is his brotherly love, brotherly affection. Notice what he says in verse 2. Older women you should treat as mothers. There's a litmus test for folks. That if you want to know you're doing something you shouldn't do, you should just ask yourself, would I do it if my mama was around? If you wouldn't do it because your mom was around, maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all, right? What if your grandma was watching? There's just something about moms and grandmas and the way we've esteemed them and respect them, and I appreciate that that's still present in our culture today. And so Paul is saying even in that culture, in that day, to Timothy, treat older women like they're your mother. 
And then he says, treat younger women as sisters, but he adds a phrase with absolute purity. I don't know about you, but protecting the purity, particularly of young people and young women, is important to me. And I want to protect that purity not by only what I do, but what I ask others to do. And the boundaries I put up and the way I try to train my eyes and where I look and how I look and those sort of things. And the way I try to live my life and what I would expect of women in my family. And what I would ask even of women in your family as part of my church family. That we need to guard the purity of ladies in particular. Notice what he says in verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. So again, Paul is saying, here's how to deal with different ages of women. But the general principle is respect. We don't need Aretha Franklin to get up here and sing to us, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. We know that we should respect one another's. You think about what the Bible says in Romans 12.10. You can write that one down. It says, honor others above yourself. Honor others above yourself. That's even deeper than respect, if you ask me. Respect is one thing. Honor is another. And if you look in the Bible, depending on how you count, there are 40 plus one another's in the New Testament of how you should be otherish to one another. Remember, my word otherish is about God's love. It's agape love. It's God-powered You can't do it on your own. It's other-focused. It's not about you. And it's self-sacrificing. It's when you give of yourself to meet the needs of others, even if that costs you something. And that other is love. So let's move on to our second point today. Our second one is that families honor God by caring for family members. Families honor God by caring for family members. Now, you see this three different times in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. It says there, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you have a mother or father, he's speaking specifically about widows because there was no recourse for them in that culture, no social security, you should care for them. And you practice your religion first, you demonstrate that you're a believer in Jesus by the care you give to your mother or your grandmother. Isn't that amazing? And he says, for this pleases God. Skip down to verse 8. Verse 8 even plays the other side of it. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We all do things at time that demonstrate our sinfulness and make us look like an unbeliever. But Paul says here, if you don't care for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, and pardon me, I need to turn the page and it's not turning. Verse 16 says, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened by them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, we'll get further with our next steps in verses 5 and following. But we need to talk for just a minute about these three verses and about what they show us here. When we have people call our church asking for benevolent assistance, they need help with their electric bill, they need help with their rent, they need help with you fill-in-the-blank bill, we generally ask them a few questions. 
we ask them, you know, how much is owed, how long it's been owed, how it got there, all those sort of things about the bill. But then we ask them questions based on this scripture right here and some other scriptures. And that's this. Do you have family members that are available to help you? Well, most of the time they'll say, no, I don't. And that's why I'm calling the church. You know, my family members are all broke or they've all disowned me or, you know, uh, nobody can help me. I've already asked them. But we have to ask. Why do we have to ask? Scripture says family should help family. The second thing we ask is, do you have church family? You know, how long have you lived in Lincoln? Do you have a church home in Lincoln? And have you asked your church to provide assistance for you? Why? Because we're trying to be stingy? No, but because Scripture says that your family should help you with your needs first. If your family's not available to help you with your need, your church family should be the second place you turn for help. It says so right there. And so we're just asking them to do what Scripture says. Most often, we help people within our church family based on this scripture. We sometimes help people that are not members of this church. We sometimes help people that are not even believers in Jesus because scripture doesn't say they have to be a believer or not. But when it comes to benevolent need, that's how we exercise that here. And that's in part from this scripture. But notice what my point says. Family honor God. It says actually pleases God, but we honor him by caring for one another's. Matthew 25 says it's what you do for the least of these, the ones in need that can't help themselves. That's how you demonstrate your love for God. Now, we've got to be careful, however, that if you just took these scriptures, verses 4, 8, and 16, and said, aha, this is our standard. It means family must help family. But you didn't pay attention to all the other extenuating circumstances of why that family member in need of help needs the help. Are they abusing some substance that's caused them to be in financial need or other need? Are they uh, living a sinful life? Are they not paying attention to biblical admonition? And are there other boundaries that they continue to violate that you know are real and biblical and then you should call them to? And there comes a point when you have to say, are we providing assistance for them? Are we enabling their sinful destructive lifestyle. So as with any issue, you've got to take not just one scripture that you start to build your theology of how do we help somebody, but you've got to look across the scripture to be able to say, so that's another sermon as I'm prone to say, but I just want to touch on that before we go ahead. So you have to be wise in the way you provide assistance would be my summary statement there. Let's move to your third point. Your third point is that church family must care for those without family. I stated that already, but let's look at it in the Scripture. The widow who is really in need and left alone puts her hope in God and continues day and night. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, there's a principle there in verse 6. It says about a widow, and that's the specific, but the general is that if we live our lives seeking to fulfill our own pleasure, then we're dead spiritually because we're seeking to be alive in the flesh. Verse 7. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. In other words, if you aren't helping folks in need, as he says, you could be blamed not by Paul, not by Timothy, but by the Holy Spirit for violating what God has told you to. So church family must care for those without family. The fourth point, the fourth point is that older widows must be of good character to receive care. 
I realize this is a little controversial in our society. So our society is not the same as their society, right? And where Paul was writing is not the same as today. But let's look at what the Scripture says. Verse 9 and 10. No widow may be put on a list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds. And he names them. Types, examples, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Now, we don't know specifically what was going on at the church in Ephesus that Paul would write this. But we have hints all along the way, and I've told you about them as we've preached through uh, 1 Timothy. That it seems that, and this isn't a sexist statement, this is the reality of what Scripture is pointing at, that the trouble with the church in Ephesus had to do with ladies who grew up in that Ephesian culture that uh, they were temple priestesses and, uh, uh, you know, religion of Aphrodite. So it involved their sexuality. It involved their assertiveness and all those sort of things. And this is the kind of woman who grew up in Ephesus. And to be a woman in Ephesus was to be this strong kind of independent woman who used every ability you had to get what you wanted. But then when they came to faith in Christ... They're called to humility, not just as women, but as all believers in Jesus. And so there was this challenge in the culture so that it seems that part of the problem at the church at Ephesus was those teaching about Judaism and Judaizers, and part of it may have had to do with these strong, assertive women who were leading the church in a different way. And so Paul gives this other admonition of the type of widow that ought to be helped by the church. Look at your fifth point there. That younger widows should be merry and avoid sinfulness. Now again, we could get mad at Paul for what he said here. and We could say, wait a second. Who says ladies can't be single and have it together? But he's speaking about a specific type of situation and what was going on in that church. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says they bring judgment on themselves because they broke in their first pledge. He's talking about not their marriage vow, because they were widowed, but their first pledge to love Jesus. And look at the example of how they did that. They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. So what he's saying is, let's say a lady doesn't yet have children, her husband dies, and if you as a church put her on the widow's list and begin providing for all her needs, she doesn't have to work for herself She's going to turn out being a busybody. She's going to be idle and a busybody. So he's not talking about just any lady. He's talking about if you put a young widow who doesn't have children on the widow's list of the church to provide care for her. And notice what he says, going about from house to house, and not only they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. Before we get all uppity about folks there at Ephesus, we need to think about ourselves being idle, busybodies, nonsense, and saying things we ought not to. And I got one word for you, Facebook. (laughs) You know, in Ephesus, he said going about from house to house. We don't even need to leave our own house to get busybodies these days, do we? Oh, look at what they said. Oh, yeah. And spreading gossip and all sorts of things like that. And it may not be Facebook, but you name your form of social media. You name the way in which you trade gossip, whether it's your phone or text message or whatever. That if we have too much time on our hands serving ourselves, it's too easy to be critical of others. Here's a statement for you. Christ followers should be busy serving others 
not busy bodies meddling in the lives of others. Amen? Christ followers should be busy in serving others, not busy bodies meddling in the lives of others. Paul said in verse 15, some have even turned away to follow Satan. When you are a busybody and a gossip, you are destroying the unity of the church. That's the work of Satan, not the work of a Christ follower. That's why Paul is so stern here in his warning. And we need to pay attention to it today. So we see some principles to live by from this passage of Scripture. Four principles to live by. The first one is that I should be known for respecting others. As a believer in Jesus, your life ought to be demonstrated by your respect. Folks that you work with ought to think you're the most respectful person there. And how do you do that? Well, yeah, I know you have bad days, and I know your personality is you know, this way or that way. But as a believer in Jesus, you need to ask God by His Holy Spirit to remind you that you've been given grace in order that you might give grace. To remind you that you've been deeply loved no matter what your sins were in order that you might deeply love. No matter what somebody's offense against you is. And on and on and on and on. And that by the Holy Spirit, you ask God to help you to be respectful. No matter the person, no matter the situation, no matter how many times they try to push your buttons, no matter how many times they fail you, you ought to seek to be respectful and be known for that. That's your first principle. Your second principle is that my otherish actions should uh, show that Jesus' love is real. So it's not just the manner in which you do what you do, but it is that you do things that show your love. You demonstrate your love by what you do. You do the dishes even when you don't feel like it. You fold the laundry. You vacuum the carpet. You go the extra mile at work. Even though it's not really part of your job and you've got stuff to do, somebody needs help, you figure out a way to help them in their job. Your otherish actions show that Jesus' love is real. You take time, even though you're like, oh man, I'd rather not do that to go meet a need for someone else. Otherish, it's God-powered, it's other-focused, it's self-sacrificing. The third point is that talking about others shouldn't consume my time. Talking about others shouldn't consume my time. My life should not be filled up with thoughts of others. And much more than that, it shouldn't be filled up with me spreading my thoughts of those others. It's one thing to think about it, make your own judgments, and say, "Mm, this probably isn't a person I need to deal with regularly because they're not trustworthy. They're not of good character. But it's another thing to share it around town and to speak it freely as an idler, a busybody, or a gossip. Jesus said... Don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you can't see the plank in your own eye, right? We must take care in the manner in which we deal with others. We need to look in the mirror more than we need to so obsessively compare ourselves and find the faults of others. The fourth principle for us from this passage of Scripture is that serving others should be my lifestyle. Talking about others shouldn't consume my time, but serving others should be my lifestyle. That we should be known for serving others. That a hallmark of a life of a believer in Jesus should be the way that we 
serve others. Whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, we should serve. And it's not just that we serve, it is the way in which we serve. So, in conclusion, I've got three questions for us to answer. The first one is, who can our church better serve? Remember, Paul was writing to Timothy as the pastor of a church to say, here's some specific rules for your church. And those rules apply in general to all churches in all situations such as ours. But I want to ask a specific question of you, members of our church. Who can we serve better? Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe it's a type of person. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you feel strongly about this, don't just write it on your outline. Send me an email. Fill out a yellow card. Come have a conversation with me. Because if God burdens you that we should be doing something different in the way we serve others, I need to hear about it. And we need to do something about it. So that's your first question. The second question is, what sort of character do my actions project? That one's a lot closer to home, I know. But what sort of character do my actions project? When people look at you, what do they see? It's not just that you got the Jesus fish on the back of your car, the cross necklace, or the cool Christian tattoos, or the Christian t-shirt, or the Jesus music on your radio, but it is how do you live like Jesus? What do they see about your life? And not only do you do the right thing, but do you do it in the right way with respect, with compassion, with love, honoring others above yourself, exercising that otherish love that is God-powered, other-focused, and self-sacrificing. And then my final question is some odd grammar on purpose. How can I do love to someone this week? Do love. Why did I put it that way? Love is a verb. How can you exercise love? Maybe would be another way to put it. But I chose to write it weird, so maybe you would remember it, right? How can I do love to somebody this week? Think about, ask the Holy Spirit to tell you, is there a specific person that I need to love this week in a specific way? Maybe it's a general person in a general way, but ask God by His Spirit to reveal that to you in order that as soon as that situation presents itself, you'll do it. Going back to my introductory story about not looking like a senior pastor, the question for you would be, do you look like a Christ follower? Not just by what you wear or where, how big your office is, but by the way you live your life and how you love others. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we're so very thankful, as always, to be able to open your word and to receive instruction. We thank you for our brother Paul, our brother Timothy. And the wisdom which they share with us is recorded in First Timothy. And we look at our sister church there so long ago in Ephesus. And we can imagine some of the issues that they had. We're thankful that we don't see all kinds of divisiveness and issues like that in our church today. Yet at the same point, wisdom tells us we've got to guard against it. 
that we need to love others in such a way, be respectful and honoring of others, serve others, seek to avoid being idlers and gossips and busybodies, seek to meet the needs of others uh, as they're provided for us, whether they're family members or church family members, and demonstrate that we are Christ followers by what we do and how we do it. So, Father, we pray now for those of us that um, are members of this body that may need to confess something based on the way that we've lived. We may need to ask you to forgive us and seek to turn and repent from those sins. Father, we pray for those who may be here today that have trusted Christ as their Savior, that they need to make that known. Or maybe they just need to make that decision today. We pray for those, Father, who may need to join our church family. Whatever it is, as we stand to sing, God, would we respond to you with our hearts humble before you, willing to be obedient however you call us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.